the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got questions concerning elder or state law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He was recognized in 2012 as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings over 30 years' experience to the table. His office number is 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Here's Mike Connors. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. Horses Welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. Today I'm accompanied by my son, Michael. Hello, everyone. Now, for those of you who listen to the show regularly or those new to the show right now, welcome. Dog in the background is whining. That's our auto. He's kind of bored by the show. But the, mostly on the show we talk about estate planning and elder law, and the idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount in taxes we need to be legally avoiding going through court, avoiding probate. Now, today we're going to take a detour from our regular routine. And we're going to talk, you know, I I was said to hear a few weeks ago that uh, Dr. Bobby Brown died. And Dr. Bobby Brown had one of the most incredible careers uh, of anybody. He was in the World War II. He was in the Korean War. He played on, I think, four Yankee World Championship teams. Third baseman was roommate of Yogi Berra back in the minor leagues. And then after his playing career ended, he became a cardiac surgeon. When his career as a cardiac surgeon ended, then he became, eventually became president of the American League. And the other one is, the other story is another Brown. I decided we'll put the two Browns on today, a past interview. Lieutenant Colonel Brown, who was a Tuskegee Airman. And he has one of the most incredible stories about being captured, you know, being shot down and captured in Austria toward the end of World War II. So uh, two incredibly different men with the same last name, two American heroes, and two very different stories. And, you know, uh, we haven't spent enough time, we haven't spent enough time, let's say, praising our heroes in, in the last few years. And, you know, Dr. Bobby Brown, Lieutenant Colonel Brown, two American heroes. Now, next week, we're going to spend a lot of time on estate planning and elder law. And if you have any estate planning questions or elder law questions, Michael, where do they email us? If you want to get an estate planning question, or email, email us at askmikeconnors at gmail.com. That's askmikeconnors, Connors spelled C-O-N-N-O-R-S, at gmail.com. And if you want to attend any of our seminars, the end of July, we're going to be doing seminars in Brooklyn and Queens. Uh, you know, we're tentatively getting back into the program, as our buddy Joe Piscopo says, you know, we're back, we're back on tour. You know, we're doing, we're doing whatever, eight shows a week. Um, but if you have any questions about estate planning, 
attend one of our seminars. We're going to be in Brooklyn and Queens. You can check our website. There's going to be a commercial at the end giving the t- dates and times of our seminars. But if you're at all interested in estate planning, how to protect your house from medical bills, nursing home bills, please give us a call at 718-238-6500. We're going to take a short break, and then we'll be talking to our heroes. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it hard to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress, a government-insured reverse mortgage may be the answer or might be the perfect solution for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner. I've been a mortgage specialist for over 20 years, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. This past October, the federal government made changes to the reverse mortgage loan program. Give me a call now so our office can show you how these changes affect how much money you receive and how the annual mortgage insurance costs have decreased. My job is to help you find the best solutions for your retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this FHA program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call and speak with me right now. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-943-2646, or try me on the internet at www.quanticbank.com backslash fmelia. Once again, call 888-943-2646, and you could be on your way to a stress-free retirement. Frank Melia, NMLS number 62591. All loans provided by Quantic Bank, NMLS number 403503. Welcome to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. As many of you listen to the show know, a lot of times we like to interview World War II veterans because World War II ended a little over 70 years ago, and it's very precious when we have time to talk to one of these veterans. And I'm very proud right now to have with me Harold Brown, one of the Tuskegee Airmen. How are you doing today, I sir? I'm just doing great. Okay, so now some of the younger members in the audience, and actually some of our older ones, they may not know who, who were the Tuskegee Airmen. Well, the Tuskegee Airmen were a group of black pilots. And let me just give you just about a few minutes of history. As you recall, back in the 30s and 40s, uh, we had long-standing policies on racial discrimination. As a matter of fact, uh, not only by law, but by tradition. And we had the so-called equal but separate law that went into effect. And uh, as we start approaching World War II, it was evident that they were going to need a whole lot of pilots. And there became a big argument between the War Department made up of generals and so forth. And we had people on our side like... uh, Senator Truman, uh, Senator Dirksen from Illinois, who was supporting us in terms of us getting a shot at becoming military pilots. Well, there was a big argument, as you would expect, but uh, our guys finally won out, and they finally decided to start a small training program with a limited number of people down in the Tuskegee Institute. Well, it was Tuskegee, but right at the uh, Tuskegee Institute, which is now Tuskegee University. So this is how the whole thing started, and that was announced in 1941. 
Now, the initial requirements were for college graduates or people which had two or three years of college. And as you would expect, that pool of potential pilots rapidly ran dry, both white and black. And particularly amongst blacks, there wasn't that many college graduates back in those days. So then someone said, well, let's just take high school kids. If they can pass the exam and if they can pass the physical, we'll accept them into military flight training. And that's how I got in. I graduated from high school in 1942. I was 17 years old. I had a love affair with airplanes when I was back in the sixth grade. So as soon as I graduated, I immediately went down, took my, uh, took my written exams. When I turned 18 in August, I took my physical exam, passed it, and I got my letter in December of 1942 that I had been selected for flight training. And then in January is when I left home on my way down to Biloxi, Mississippi, where they gave us our, uh, base, our basic training in high school, I mean in the military, and then from Biloxi, Mississippi, we were sent up to uh, Tuskegee Institute. Okay, so you're starting your way in your military career. After your training, where were you sent? Where were you stationed? Okay, I was... Uh, the first squadron they sent over the 99th to North Africa. The group, the 332nd Fighter Group, was finally sent over to the European Theater, and they were stationed in uh, Italy at a place called Ramatelli, which was uh, right on the Adriatic Sea. And it was just so oh, about 35 kilometers north of Folger. And uh, the, three, three, uh, the uh, 15th Air Force had just about 600 bombers and roughly uh, seven fighter uh, groups. They had four groups of P-51s and the three groups of uh, P-38s. And we were all stationed in that general area, which meant we were flying from north to south up in the Europe uh, against all the targets. And the mighty 8th Air Force over in England was flying from east to west uh, hitting targets. To give you some idea, the 8th Air Force, they call it the mighty 8th, they could put up 2,000 bombers and 1,200 fighters for maximum effort. So they were a big, big outfit. Now, what was your job? What was your mission? Okay. The 15th and the 8th Air Force had the same mission, and that was strategic bombings. We were escorting the heavy bombers, the B-17s and the B-24s, from their home bases in the various targets up in, the, up in Europe. Okay, now... I understand you were shot down. Unfortunately, you understand correctly, sir. I was <laughs> shot down. <laughs> so what happened? Can, can you tell us what sure, happened? I do a rough little... Uh, well, I can tell you uh, about a couple of bad things that happened to me. The first time was on my 12th mission, 
and we got uh, tangled up with the ME262. Now, the ME262 is a brand-new twin-engine jet that just came in operation towards the end of the war, very fast, 100 miles an hour faster than our P-51s. And they jumped us one day, and uh, they attacked our bombers. My wingman and I picked one up, and we followed them all the way down to the ground. Well, he's going at maximum speed, whether he's going straight down or whether he's flying straight and level. Now, when we go straight down in our 51s, we are not at our maximum speed. So I'm picking up a little speed on him, and he's not separating as fast away from me as he could if he was flying straight and level. Long story short, he led us over a flat trap. I got hit, and my wingman and them, I were trying to get back, and I had fuel exhaustion, but I did get back to northern Italy uh, out of fuel and spotted an old abandoned landing strip, but death sticked it on the landing strip, tore it to pieces, and as I tell all of the kids and things that I tell them this story, I said, and what do you think I did then after I crash landed? And they looked very puzzled. I said, well, I jumped out of the aircraft, and I brushed off my uniform, and I said, fantastic job, hero, great job. And they get a big kick out of it. But on my 30th mission, we were on a strafing mission, and uh, my aircraft was damaged uh, from an exploding locomotive. Just as I passed over it, it blew up, damaged my aircraft. Uh, we were just south of Linz, Austria, uh, hilly country, right there close to the Alps, and I had to bail out that there was no, and I had no other choices. So I bailed out, and uh, I was picked up about 30 minutes after bailing out by a couple of constables, and then I started up on what was the most horrible adventure I had during the entire war. Now, what was it like for you, an African-American captured by the Nazis? That becomes quite interesting. When they picked me up, they took me back to, and by they I'm talking about the two constables who uh, escorted me back into the little village that we had been strafing. And if you stop and think about it a minute, supposing you were there and here comes a bunch of airplanes shooting up the place, not shooting at people, shooting at legitimate targets, shrapnels flying all over the place, a piece of shrapnel might hit your wife, your kid, your ma, your dad, whatever. You're going to be pretty doggone angry when you see this guy bail out and all of a sudden here he comes walking in with the two constables. And that's what I faced, 40, about 40 of the angriest people I have ever witnessed in my life. And they made it perfectly clear, they were hollering and screaming at me, that they were going, they were going to do me in. And they made certain that I understood that I was going to die in the next few minutes. Well, as luck would have it, there's always one good person in the crowd, and there was a constable way in the back who slowly walked around to the front, stepped in front of me, 
put a round in his rifle and kept those people from killing me. Now, if you think about that for a moment, that constable had to know everybody in that crowd. He probably even had some of his own friends and family in that crowd. But he kept those people from killing me. We backed up about over the amount to a couple of blocks. We went into a pub. He ran everybody out. We barricaded ourselves in that little pub. And then as evening came on, this was wintertime in March of 1945, they slowly started to disperse. And by midnight, they had all dispersed. And we went out the back door and we walked about four or five kilometers down to the next village where they got on the phone or someone. They called down and in a short while, a couple of soldiers came in and picked me up. And at, from that point, I was in the custody of, uh, of the German army. And uh, the only thing that you really had to worry about then was to get into a prison camp safely. But you were traveling from where you shot down to the prison camps. And my first uh, prison camp was in Nuremberg, Germany. And that was also where they had the interrogation center, which had come from Frankfurt because the Americans were advancing pretty closely. But if you were able to do that and didn't attempt to escape, then you had no problems. But in answer to your question, how do they treat me? I tell everyone jokingly that that was the first time that I had experienced uh, integration in my life because I was there with Canadian pilots, English pilots, Australian pilots, you name it. And we were all there together and no one could care less. We were all POWs and all we had on mine on our mind was just surviving the war, and all we had to do was suffer a little hungry, and we were always hungry. Now, but that's all we had to do, and, and the only other thing is don't attempt to escape, and you could survive the war, and that's what we did. Now, where were you when the, when the war was over? Okay. Uh, as I said, uh, I first went to Nuremberg, but I was only there a short while, about 10 days. There was about 10,000 of us there. We were on a forced march, and we walked from Nuremberg down to Moosburg. Moosburg is about 30 kilometers north of Munich. And there were already thousands of prisoners in Moosburg, which was a very well-known prison camp. And that is where I was at. And within a couple of weeks or so, uh, Patton, General Patton came through on April the 29th and tore down the fence and liberated all of us. So how'd you feel at that moment? Can you describe it? Happy. <laughs> Very happy. As a matter of fact, I don't know uh, uh, what you know about General Patton. But, you know, he was a big man, about six foot, two inches tall. And as you've seen all of his picture, he wears the breeches and the boots, and he wears two pistols on his hip. And he had one of the filthiest mouths you ever want to hear. Every other word was, 
use your imagination, and that's what came out of his mouth. And he loved the crowd, and with every one of those nice four-letter words he used, the whole crowd, there were thousands of us standing there as he was standing on his Jeep, they were screaming, yay, Patton, yay, Patton. And he was responding, I'm on my way to Berlin, and when I get there, I'm going to catch that paper hanging, dash, 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 and I'm going to do dash, dash, dash to him. You can fill in the dashes. And uh, that was what he was telling us that he was going to do. But that was Patton. I'll tell you a little story about Patton. You know, he always carried two guns. And uh, their story isn't supposed to be true. Uh, this reporter was interviewing Patton, and he says, Sir, why do you carry those two ivory handle pistols on your hips? And he says, Son, let me tell you something. The only man who carries a pearl handle pistol is a pimp down in New Orleans. These are ivory handle pistols, and don't you ever forget it. <laughs> A true story, but it sounds pretty good, and just like Patton. All right, now the war's over. What do you decide to do for your career? Well, I came home from the war. I was 20 years old, wasn't old enough to vote, uh, couldn't go into a bar legally. But I decided that I wanted to make it a career, so I stayed in the military until I served for 23 years in the, uh, in the military. Uh, I went back, my first assignment was back to Tuskegee. And uh, they only had, that was the only base we had besides one other base, uh, Godman Field, which had the other Tuskegee pilots, the B-25 pilots who didn't get overseas because the war ended too soon. And we all wound up at Logbourne Air Force Base, and that was from 1946 to 1949. Now, an interesting thing, when I was down at Tuskegee, I joined them in September of 1945, and I was an instrument flight instructor. Well, I was up practicing one day underneath the hood, and you have a safety pilot up in front. And as we were flying along, all of a sudden there was this horrible noise and rocking of the aircraft. And I said, my God, we had a mid-air collision. And I come out from underneath the hood, and we had had a mid-air collision. The uh, instructor and cadet in the other uh, T-6 bailed out of their aircraft. We took off their whole epionage. Our aircraft was heavily damaged, but we managed uh, to land it safely. So I was just at that time 21 years and two months old, and I've had a crash landing. I bailed out of an aircraft, and I had and I survived a mid-air collision. So I figure I was a pretty lucky young guy. But I stayed in, and uh, I, you know, served in Korea. I came back, and I finally wound up in the Strategic Air Command, SAC, and I was flying the B-47. The B-47 was the first six-jet engine bomber, and uh, that's what I did the last 10 years of my career uh, in the Air Force, and I retired with 23 years of service.
Now, if somebody wants to read about your career, what's you've got a book out. What's the name of your book? I'm looking at a stack of them right now in big, bold red letters. And you know our P-51s were all painted with, with red tails. And we were known as the Red Tail Fighter Pilots. Well, in big, bold letters, they got it in red. And it is, Keep Your Airspeed Up, The Story of a Tuskegee Airman. Keep Your Airspeed Up. Where can we get the book? Keep Your Airspeed Up, The Story of a Tuskegee Airman. Where can we get the book? Well, they are available at Amazon, almost all of the major bookstores. And I think they even have a, a Kindle version available So it is uh, widely available, uh, and I suppose if you wanted to get one fast, you know Amazon, you just give them a call, and in a day or two, it's at your foot, it's at your doorstep. So what are you doing with yourself now, Colonel, besides writing books and autographing books? Oh, my goodness. Uh, After I left the military, uh, I had been an instructor pilot all throughout my career, and I thought I would really like to continue in that field. So I went into education. I started with a little school in Columbus, Ohio, grade 13 and 14. And it was called the Columbus Area Technician School. We had three programs, 67 students, and 12 faculty members. Today, that school is 30,000 students enrolled, the largest community college in the state of Ohio, and is is Columbus State Community College. I went up the ladder and became the vice president of this school, and when I retired from them, uh, we only had just about 10,000 students. But other than other than going back to school, I went back to my Ph.D. from Ohio State back in 1973. I got my Ph.D. So I was in education. I retired from them in 1986. I then did what most educa- retired educators do. I opened up Brown & Associate, a consulting firm. So I consulted, and I had a continuing contract with the Ohio State Board of Career Colleges and Schools, the Ohio State Agency, which regulates all of the profit-making schools in the state of Ohio. And I had a continuous contract with them until I quit them in 2012. And I also had my own private firm on the side. Uh, So that's what I did. uh, from 1986 up until 2012 when I retired from everything. Well, listen, thank you for sharing your story with us. Keep Your Airspeed Up by Dr. Brown, Colonel Brown. And thank you thank you again. I hope your book does well. And if you're ever in New York, come see us. And I will most certainly do that. And I thank you so much for this opportunity. Uh, it was really a pleasure. And thank you. Thank you again. Yes, sir. Goodbye. Goodbye. Hi, this is Patrick Wayne. I had the good fortune to be raised by a man of strength and courage, a man of true grit. My father, John Wayne, died of stomach cancer in 1979. 
and in his characteristic style, he ignored advice to keep his disease quiet and campaigned publicly to encourage preventive treatments. He inspired our family to carry on that mission. And today, the John Wayne Cancer Institute at Providence St. John's Health Center in Santa Monica, California, continues to take bold steps in cancer research. The John Wayne Cancer Institute has developed novel approaches to detect cancer, establishes therapies to boost the immune system to fight what my dad called the big C, and initiated less invasive surgeries. We've made significant advances in treating melanoma and breast cancer. All this has been made possible by my father's legacy of determination and a community of supporters who have helped expand upon that legacy. For more information, visit www.jwcigiving.org. Do you have somewhere to sleep? Did you eat today? Are you making ends meet? For thousands of New Yorkers, the answer is no. For children and youth, adults, seniors, people struggling with addiction or mental illness, and for the isolated, Catholic Charities of Brooklyn and Queens is there. With 160 programs and more than 4,500 units of affordable housing, Catholic Charities is one of the largest multi-service charitable organizations in the nation. We help change lives and build communities. If you or someone you know needs assistance, call 718-722-6001 or visit CCB. Welcome to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. Sometimes when you talk to children and ask them what they want to be when they grow up, they might say, I want to be a doctor. I want to be a baseball player. I want to serve in the military. I want to be a high-powered executive. Our next guest was able to accomplish all these tasks in life, former third baseman Dr. Bobby Brown. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing all right. I'm still upright and hopefully talking in complete sentences. Obviously, there were not a lot of people around who were watching baseball in your rookie season. You come up to the majors in 1947 with the New York Yankees. What was that like? Well, I came up in 1946, at the end of the season. Uh, we we spent 1946, Yogi and myself, with the Newark Bears. But when we were eliminated in the playoffs, we were called up by the Yankees at the time to finish the, out the season with them. The, Boston had clinched the pennant, and uh, I think we were uh, called up around September the 20th, somewhere in there, and it was Yogi and myself, Vic Rashi, and Frank Coleman, an outfielder. And we joined the Yankees and played with them until the season ended. 1947 was a pretty big year then. In 1947, uh, uh, Yogi and I were with them the whole, and Vic Rashi the whole year. And you guys made it to the World Series. Correct, and won the World Series. Right. So what was it like? You're basically a rookie back then. Who were some of the ball players you were playing with back in 1946 and 47? Well, Yogi and I guess Aaron Robinson were the catchers. We had uh, George McQuinn on first base, uh, George Sternweiss, Snuffy Sternweiss at second, uh, Rizzuto at short, uh, Billy Johnson and I played third. We had, uh, I think, Keller in left, uh, DiMaggio in center, and Henrik in right. Uh, I think that was pretty much the uh, the lineup. Keller might have been hurt. Uh, he had a, a ruptured uh, intervertebral intervertebral uh, uh, disc that, that uh, was bothering him, and so uh, uh, he may have uh, been uh, somewhat uh, limited as to what he where he could play. But uh, 
that was basically the lineup that played. And uh, interestingly enough, I think everybody, with the exception of maybe George Sternweiss, everybody had been in the in in the service during World War II, and we all came back to play. So you served in the United States military during World War II. Well, I was in the U.S. Navy. Uh, I enlisted as, when I entered Stanford in uh, the, the uh, I guess it was the fall of 42, and uh, I turned 18 and uh, enlisted in the Navy and was in the Navy until uh, uh, May of 46, uh, till uh, January of 1946. But I never got off the campus because I was a pre-med, and they were afraid they were going to run out of doctors before the war ended. And so they uh, kept all the pre-meds at the time. Uh, they kept us uh, in uniform but in school. And then as we were able to, to get to the point in our training that uh, we were full-fledged uh, MDs and had done internships, uh, then we were called to, to active duty as in, in a more uh, uh, combat setting. How do you become a major league ball player while studying to be a doctor and being in the service? Well, the, the, the Navy, of course, sponsored it during the war. And uh, and of course I couldn't I I was not in professional baseball then I got halfway through medical school but uh, I was about halfway through when the war ended and uh, and that's when I signed the baseball contract and began to join have both of them uh, on my uh, my docket. I would go to uh, I would go to school from the middle of October until the the opening day of the of the season, and then play in the baseball uh, season uh, uh, for the rest of the time. And uh, I would divide it up between both school and and baseball, and it was approximately six months each. Who was your roommate when you first started in the major leagues? Well, I think maybe it was Ralph Hauk. I roomed with Yogi with, uh, when we were at Newark, and I think uh, that first year in 1947, uh, Ralph Hauk and I roomed together. We both we we both uh, were bachelors at the time. Ralph uh, lost his wife uh, to rheumatic heart disease, and and during the war. And so he was a bachelor, and I was a bachelor, and so we uh, we hooked up together and and, and roomed both uh, at home uh, and on the road. And Ralph Houck later became the manager of the Yankees in the 1960s. That's correct. And later, general manager. He was he he received a battlefield uh, commission. He started as a private, and I think he just was discharged a major. But uh, he had a very distinguished uh, war record, perhaps the most decorated of all the ball players, because he went all through uh, uh, the, the, the campaign in Europe. Uh, and I think for a long time he was attached with to Patton's army, and he was uh, in the, the Ranger Battalion, but he was attached to Patton, uh, General Patton's army. A lot of people today might find it inconceivable that Major League Baseball players were drafted, volunteered to serve in the military in the middle of their careers. People might have trouble 
thinking about that now uh, and, and digesting those facts. But uh, in World War II, everybody that was the, the least bit able-bodied uh, got into the service. Uh, there were no lines trying to escape the draft. Uh, everybody knew that it was a fight to death, and we, everybody in the country uh, was doing something in the war effort. There were very few people that weren't connected to the war effort during World War II. Thank you for your service. Now, 1947, who was the manager of the Yankees? I think it, we, uh, it might have been uh, Bucky Harris. That was in, uh, beginning in 1949, Casey Stengel. Casey had managed in the in the National League uh, not too successfully because he had tough teams, uh, but uh, I think he was uh, selected after uh, Bucky Harris was let go, and uh, he he assumed the team in in the spring of 1940. Excuse me, uh, it was 1949. Casey it came. 1949, Casey Stengel. Although he didn't have a very good career, yes, he managed poor ball clubs, but he didn't seem to have a very good career managing the Brooklyn Dodgers and the Boston Braves. So how did you guys react to Stengel being your manager? Well, we you know, we gave him a, a chance to see what he was going to do. And, uh, you know, as time went on, it was obvious that uh, he, he could handle the things pretty doggone well. He had good coaches, and and he had a good team, and he knew how to use his men wisely, the the players. And so uh, I think uh, uh, that everybody accepted that fact that he knew what he was doing. Now, there were a lot of players that, players that had been with the Yankees before the war with uh, Joe McCarthy, and most of those players remained uh, uh devoted McCarthy fans but I think basically they they tolerated and 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 enjoyed Casey to a certain extent also I don't know if it was appreciated enough in the 1950s but you did have a very good on base percentage well you know I I did well at Newark I hit well I think I hit 341 at Newark and AAA my first year out of out of med school or first year coming from med school and uh, uh, I filled in mostly in 47. Uh, Billy Johnson was a terrific third baseman, and he played most of the season in, 30, in 47. So I did a lot of pinch hitting and fitting and filling in and when people in the infield got hurt. How many years did you play with the Yankees? Well, I went. It was spanned from the, the September of 1946 until. Uh, the first uh, of July of uh, uh, '54, but uh, I had to go back into the service because I was an MD, so I missed uh, half of '52, all of '53, and I got back out of from Korea and Japan in the uh, in May, about May 1st of '54, and I I finished. Uh, I finished May and June of 54 and then retired. I was going to turn 30, and I had a residency in internal medicine that started July 1st of 54. Okay, and again, I want the younger people to understand this. You served in the military during World War II, yes. You went to medical school, but then you were called back into active duty for the Korean War while you were in the majors. That's correct, because I was called back because I was an MD. So you retire from baseball. What happens then? 
Well, when I retired in the in the uh, I guess it was July first of '54, uh, uh, then I uh, I started my residency in medicine in San Francisco at the uh, or, correction. Uh, I, yes, I started my residency in in uh, in in. Uh, internal medicine on the 1st of July, I guess, of 54. And then somehow you got called back into baseball. How did that happen? Well, I, I practiced uh, uh, eventually. I started my uh, private practice on the 1st of January, the, on uh, August the 1st of 50, 1958. And I practiced for 25 years in cardiology here at, at, uh, in Fort Worth. And at that time, I was going to turn 60, getting tired, and uh, I, I had the owner of the, uh, the, the Texas Rangers uh, here in Fort Worth, and he asked me if I would be willing to to apply for the commissioner's job. I, Bowie Kuhn was going to be terminated at the end of his uh, present uh uh, uh, contract time, and uh, they were going to get a new commissioner. And uh, he asked me if I would, uh, if I would be willing to go and, and uh, with and, and and make an application for it. And I thought about it. And uh, uh, you know, doctors that retire at that age, they can't do much when they're not in medicine. They're not equipped to do anything. And I knew baseball, and so I said, well, yeah, I'll go up there and talk to them, which I did. And that's how I got back into baseball. I didn't. They were looking for a businessman and commissioner, and they made an excellent choice when they picked Peter Uberoth. But the, uh, 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 Lee McPhail was retiring as the president of the American League, and they asked me if I'd be interested in that. And I talked with Lee because I... Uh, his father had signed me with the Yankees, and I knew who Lee was, and he just told me that it was a base job and that I would really enjoy it, and I could really step in and and not and, and not be hampered. And so that's what I finally decided to do. There have been a lot of changes in baseball since you left the presidency of the American League, like interleague play. I know the DH came before you, but what do you think about the DH and interleague play? And of course, do you have any comment about the steroid use? Well, uh, as far as interleague play, I was never really a big fan of that. I guess people my age are difficult to change. Uh, I always thought it was quite fair that the two best teams uh, that played that throughout the both seasons, that both leagues uh, during the season, and the two best teams played in the World Series. Uh, now with the playoffs, of course, it's conceivable that a team that's not the best team can get a hot streak and get into the World Series. But uh, the, the the, the thing that worried the owners was that uh, sometimes the, uh, the the six teams in both leagues uh, during September didn't have a chance to win the pennant, and the interest in the fans waned. And so, uh, the, to do away with that, they came up with the playoffs, and they, of course, they've added more teams now, and so forth, and it makes for a different format. What about the DH? What's your opinion? Well, I think that 
the thing that I always thought baseball was great was that uh, you were constantly weighing the pluses and minuses of the people that were playing and not playing. And uh, of course, when you have a DH, you've kind of uh, you kind of bypass that. Uh, the the fact that uh, you could have a uh, just a hitter that does nothing but hit, and he doesn't have to do any uh, fielding and whatnot, I thought was a little bit against the the, the proper way baseball ought to be played. So uh, I was never a big fan of the the the, the designated hitter uh, also. But uh, again, uh, I think people my age, uh, they tend to be negative and uh, about changes and so forth, and and uh, I, I'm I'm no exception. I think. Well, I agree with you. Last thing now. Sometimes there's a little bit of controversy as to whether some of the ball players who are involved in the steroid use should be in the Hall of Fame, like Barry Bonds or Alec Rodriguez, for instance. What's your opinion? Well, I think this. Uh, I think the 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 chance to do steroids and to see the enhancement of your record. If you go from a, a guy that hits 15 home runs to a guy that hits 35 home runs with the uh, with the advent of a salary increase and so forth, I think the temptation or the reason to use them uh, was, was obvious to all the players. And uh, they I felt, I don't believe anybody ever uh, looked at what, any of the secondary effects of some of the drugs that, that were taken and whatnot, uh, and there was no specific rule at the time that was, said a ball player couldn't take it. So uh, I think that it was almost uh, it was almost mandatory if you wanted to be successful as a ball player, you almost had to be into that club that takes steroids. And the, the fact that uh, it was ruled uh, uh, an enhancement and, and banned later on was understandable, but everybody could adhere to it then. But uh, I just think that uh, that players that took the steroids, uh, uh, there was no rule against it, as I recall, and that uh, they, they they ought to be admitted to the Hall of Fame if they have the Hall of Fame statistics. And if you have the dates on there, which are the, on the plaques, you know that at a certain time that the chances are very good that the person that was uh, put into the Hall of Fame might have been a user of drugs. One more question. Your baseball career. What was the greatest thrill that you had playing in the majors? Well, I guess... Uh, I got uh, cups. I got some big hits in the World Series. Uh, I hit a triple off Joe Hatton, who was uh, Joe Hatton. It was a Brooklyn pitcher, and he and I played on the same semi-pro team in San Francisco. And now we're against each other in the World Series, and with the bases loaded, he's pitching for the Dodgers, and I'm have a pinch hitting. I'm hitting for the Yankees, and I tripled off the ba- off off of Joe, and that was a big thrill. And I had a big thrill in Game 7 of the 47 series. I was pinch hitting. I pinched hit for Bill Bevins in the fourth inning. We were down two to one with the, uh, 
against the Dodgers. And we had a man on first and second. I think uh, Joe DiMaggio was on first and maybe Billy Johnson on second. And they put me in to hit for Bevins, whose arm was bad, and he couldn't pitch anymore. And uh, I, I doubled down the left field line that that tied up the game and put the go-ahead run on third, and that, sco- and that runner scored. And we went on to win 5-2, to two, and that was a tremendous thrill for me to get into that deciding game and get a big hit. So I think those two things I remember most vividly. And obviously you won that World Series. We did. What are you doing now? Are you retired, enjoying life, or still doing something else? Well, I'm 92. If I can just exist, I'm doing great. And uh, (laughs) I need to get up. Nothing works. I mean, everything is is bad now as far as working. But at the same time, uh, I'm talking to you about the past uh, things that happened uh, 15, 60 years ago and uh, hopefully making sense, and I'm grateful for that. Well, you know, I don't think there are many players from the 1947 World Series who are still alive. No, I'm the only Yankee from the 47 team that's alive. I'm the only one. And I think we've got maybe four or five that are alive from the team that uh, won in 49. Uh, I know Whitey Ford and I uh, are, are alive, and and I think Irv Noren's alive, and uh, I just can't remember right offhand anybody else, but I'm sure there might be some more. In your opinion, who was the greatest ball player you played with or against? Joe DiMaggio. The greatest pitcher you ever hit against? Well, I don't know. There were all kinds of them, you know, good. Uh, we we had the, we had the best pitchers against us uh, from every team we played. We didn't get the the, the number nine guy on the pitching staff. That's the tenth guy. We got the the top six, and uh, so all of those. And we had great pitching. Uh, Cleveland had great pitching. Detroit had great pitching. The A's, the uh, Philadelphia A's had great pitching. We just uh, Boston had good pitching. We just had. Uh, Good pitching that was against us. Dr. Bobby Brown, World War II veteran, Major League Baseball player, Korea War veteran, president of the American League, medical doctor. I don't think anybody that I ever met had a fuller life than you had had. Well, I don't know. I I haven't uh, really thought about it too much, but at the same time, uh, I'm just grateful for everything that happens, and I was grateful that I got out without being wounded or being uh, disabled in any way. And... uh, you, you, you did what your 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 country needed you to do, and you didn't ask for any favors or anything. You just took what they gave you, and and so I'm very happy about all that, and I'm just very grateful and thankful. And my prayers were answered, and I got a chance to play ball, and I got a chance to go through med school, and I got a chance to serve my country, and I think that was great. And best of all. I married a tremendous gal, and we had a wonderful family, and we still do. And so life has been very good to me. Thank you for being on the show, Dr. Bobby Brown. Please, fellas, we need you. Mally Kelly, the baseball game, knew the players, knew all their names. You could see how their everyday shot hooray when they played. 
her boyfriend by the name of Joe said, To Coney Isle, dear, we'll go. Then Nellie started to fret and pout. And to him I heard her shout, Hey, take me out to the ball game. Take me out with the crowd. Buy me some peanuts and Cracker Jack. I don't care if I never get back. Let me root, root, root for the home team. If they don't win, it's a shame. Cause it's one, two, three strikes. You're out at the old ball Kevin McCullough, are you or your parents' assets protected from nursing home bills? Did you know these bills can exceed $15,000 a month? People work their entire lives to live comfortably in retirement, but when people become ill and need to go to a nursing home or receive home care, the bills can drain their assets, leaving many people bankrupt. The good news is that you can prevent that from happening if you plan in advance. Connors and Sullivan's lawyers can customize a plan that specifically protects your interests, including your home. Schedule a free comprehensive telephone consultation with Mike Connors to discuss your issues and concerns from the security of your home. Call today, 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. Don't let nursing home bills take your life's savings and leave you and your loved ones bankrupt. Don't wait another minute. Mike Connors can take you through the process by telephone and start a plan designed for you today. That's 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500. The preceding pre-recorded program paid for by Connors and Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC.